This podcast is offered by Jikoji Zen Center on the web at jikoji.org. Our programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Good morning, everybody. Nice to see everybody. Um, my name's Vanessa. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a student from Canando, and we're up here this weekend as a group on a retreat. So um, we'd like to, to thank everybody at Chikoji for hosting us and for making us feel welcome with a lot of warmth, a lot of friendliness, as they always do. Thank you. And I'd like to thank my teacher at Canando Les Kay and my teacher back at home, Guy Mercier, and my, my sangha, my friends in my sangha who support me as we support each other in our practice. So today, um, I want to talk about perfection. And uh, the, the idea for this subject came up for me uh, a few weeks ago at Canando. We had a teacher of Zen arts come up from San Francisco, and she taught a workshop on Enzo's so I don't know if everybody knows what an Enzo is, but it's, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a circle. It's a circle that's done with brush and ink, a calligraphy. So this is a, this is a, a popular Zen art form. And so this lady, Marsha Lieberman, some of you might know her, she, she came to Canando for a morning and she spent the morning showing us how we could set ourselves up to draw our own Enzos. So an Enzo, as we, as we found out, is, is a circle that you paint in a single brush stroke, in a single breath. It's done in a moment. And um, it has its origins in calligraphy, but obviously what the circle itself, as a symbol, representation of a circle, even in Buddhism, goes back a really long way. Um, the, the wheel of Dharma, for example, the round stupas that are then circum, circumambulated on foot, you walk around them, um, Tibetan prayer wheels, mandalas, and even in Zen, the image of the moon that we use a lot, the image of the full moon. And then there's the Enzo, which is a circle, or, or an O, or a zero, however you perceive it. It can be nothing, empty, or void, or it can be the circle that contains the entirety of everything, all at once. It can be both. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of profound meaning inside the Enzo. So we were shown how to set up a workstation for painting an Enzo. You, you lay down your paper, you weigh it down with stones, you get your brush ready, your ink. And we were, we were encouraged to then just stop and sit and bring ourselves together and wait and breathe for that moment to come and then made a circle. And so we started and we had lots of paper and we were encouraged to just keep drawing circles, keep drawing circles, not to be precious. And what I found as I was drawing my circles is that I was trying to make them good. Like I was trying to make these perfect circles and every time I, I made something that didn't resemble a circle that pleased me. I would kind of get this tightness inside me, like this, like, oh, that's not, it's not right, I need to do it better. And so I had a flashback because I, I used to be an art student. That was my training. I went to art school for many years. And one of the, one of the first things I remember learning somehow in art school, some fact that reached me, was that the 14th century Florentine painter Giotto, Italian, could draw a perfect circle, like hand draw a perfect circle. And it was initially a very fascinating piece of information for me. And, and then I, I thought about it a lot and it came to possess me in a sort of weird, dark, unexpected way, which is hard to say why exactly, especially now in retrospect, but I think it had a lot to do with being young and overwhelmed by this, the prospect of this kind of professional perfectionism. 
Um, it tapped into a lot of my feelings um, about what I'd learned in art history about sort of this concept of the Renaissance and these sort of great genius people who are capable of doing such great things. And I, I think it's something that a student of any field really would perhaps feel at the start. Um, so it, what I learned about the Italian Renaissance was that it was this sort of reemergence of classical, essentially platonic, ideals um, and it was a movement towards a kind of perfection and structure and a sort of an organization. Um, Plato suggested that we could all imagine a perfect circle but doing it was something different. So that made me think of a quote from one of my favorite writers David Foster Wallace and he was talking about the difficulty of perfectionism and he said, you know, the whole thing about perfectionism, the perfectionism is very dangerous because, of course, if your fidelity to perfectionism is too high, you never do anything. It's actually kind of tragic because it means you sacrifice how gorgeous and perfect it is in your head for what it really is. And to add to that, another writer that I admire, Zadie Smith, she's a British writer, and uh, she was offering some advice to, to other writers and artists, I suppose, or anyone really. And um, Zadie said, resign yourself to the lifelong sadness that comes from never being satisfied. So <laughs> I could relate to this. <laughs> And especially back in the day when I was a student, my object, my, my instinct, sorry, was to object to this idea of perfection, to this pressure to perfect, which, which could be internal or external. I didn't want to face the tragedy of imperfection and spend the rest of my life feeling dissatisfied. So, so I made some art, I made a drawing um, it was a very small thing. It was almost kind of a performance piece. Um, but the memory of it has stayed with me for a long time, so I'd like to share it with you. Um, I took this huge sheet of graph paper. I went to the design shop and just bought this big rectangle of paper that was divided up into small squares. And in each square, I took a pencil and I drew a circle. I drew another circle. I drew another circle. And there were hundreds, like absolutely hundreds. I just kept drawing a circle, drawing a circle, drawing a circle. And I called the drawing a thousand attempts at a perfect circle. It was obsessive and boring and repetitive, almost punitive, um, funny in some ways. And eventually it was, it, was, it was meditative. When I finished drawing a circle into every last box on the, sh on the sheet, I stood back and, and looked at it. And it gave me a feeling a bit like um, right now I'm sewing an, an okay, sir. So when you sort of step back from your Zen sewing and you look at it from a distance, it looks like it could be machine made. But then when you, when you come close to it, you, you see the marks, the human marks, you see the mark of humanity in there. And looking at this drawing that I made was, was kind of like looking at the passage of time put down on paper. Uh, in every circle, there was like, there was an account of my mind, of, uh, of my attention, of the lack of my attention. It was um, like, like with the sewing practice, I'd become so familiar with each of, with the shape that I was working with that everyone almost take, took on its separate character and told a story. There was an expression in them. So it didn't matter to me anymore that the circles were not perfect. In fact, they were an expression of something else. And as such, to me, they became a lot more interesting. So when I started out, I guess I knew, like I knew that it was impossible. Like I, I wasn't Giotto. I was not going to draw the perfect circle, but there was something about trying to do it that also appealed to me, knowing that I wouldn't get there, but putting myself out there, having a go at it. And, and that to me felt like practice. There was something in the simplicity and the determination of this gesture that sort of soothed the anxiety that I had about perfection since I proved a thousand times that I could not be, would never be, perfect. <laughs> and it was kind of a release. 
So at the time of, of this, this was during my master's degree, I'd been practicing Zen for about three or four years, and I had still not encountered Enzo's at that time. So I did not know that at some point between Giotto's murals at the Scroveni Chapel, which was his, his masterpiece, and say Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel, which came a few, a few decades later, um, the art of the calligraphed Enzo in Japan was really taking off around this time. And in fact, the first, what I just showed you before, that was the first surviving Enzo painted on, on paper. It's a copy, not a very good copy from my printer at home. Um, it was painted in 1455 by um, a master called Yoshisoi. And so it made me think of this. With some, somehow there's a connection. <laughs> um, two works of art, and they're pretty different from one another. Sorry, I'm not showing side very well. So these are not completely contemporaneous, but they happened within about 50 years of each other. So one is pretty simple. The other one's pretty intense in its imagery. And obviously, it's, it's, this one is part of a much larger piece, which I'm sure you're all familiar with, but the whole of the Sistine Chapel, which took about four years to paint. Um, and it, and it nearly destroyed Michelangelo, like physically. <laughs> he, he insisted on standing up while he was painting the whole thing instead of lying down. So he, he really did his neck in. They both come from very different places um, in terms of the way that they view the world and nature. The Enzo is spontaneous and organic, and the Sistine Chapel ceiling is heavily premeditated and structured. The artist's role in each case is very different. In the case of the Sistine Chapel ceiling, the artist is the architect, he's the creator. He has the idea in his head and he moves to execute it. Uh, it's a work of will, and in this case, even endurance. And there's a plan, a schema, that adheres to certain principles, and the artist exerts maximum control in order to get there. So the Enzo is different. In the Enzo, the artist enters into a space of unknowing, kind of takes a leap as far as the work's concerned. The artist doesn't know what's going to happen in the next second when, when they're painting an Enzo. It's a, it's a gesture and a mark of letting go. And as I, as I was sort of finding out the hard way when I was trying to do it myself, you, you can't control it. You shouldn't seek to control it because there's no principle beyond the gesture itself that needs to be adhered to. So Michelangelo, in a way, is sort of answering to God, but Yososoi, our Enzo master here, is only answering to himself. And despite their differences, there's something, in, something that I kind of felt that they had in common that I'd like to share. I've got a close-up here of that very famous loaded space, the most loaded space in art history. So I, it, it got me thinking about spaces, you know, when, when we talk about the Enzo that sort of contains nothing and everything at the same time. I sort of thought of this as being the space between humanity and divinity, um, which I'm, I'm sure that's exactly what it was intended to represent. And um, and I sort of noticed that actually humanity isn't really, it's not straining so hard to get to divinity. It's kind of relaxed. <laughs> I feel like God's trying much harder to, to reach man than the other way around in, in, in this painting. Man's like, eh, I'm good. <laughs> so, so what's this about? You know, what, what's the nature of this gap? How big is it? And what, what do we do in the face of it? And, and will it ever be closed? There are traditions that lament human imperfection. Um, but in Zen, I feel like we give our shortcomings a much more positive spin. The space between our intentions and their conclusions, i.e. perfection, it's kind of the territory of our lives. It's, it's the arena in which we practice. So as Buddhists, we, 
we might practice the, the paramitas or the perfections. In Sanskrit, paramita literally means having reached the other shore. And it also means transcendence or perfection. In Mahayana Buddhism, there are six, generally, paramitas. They are generosity, virtue, patience, diligence, meditation, and wisdom. And the true practice of these is to become free from self-attachment. But for me, at least, like even when I just read them out loud like this, I, 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 I viscerally sense this danger that I could, I could start to obsess over these, you know, that you could start to spend your whole life, you know, just focusing so hard on attaining each of these perfections that you'd kind of miss the whole show while that was happening. Um, striving, striving for perfection or striving for anything is not a fun state to be in. It's, it's terse and it's constrictive. It can be. It doesn't necessarily feel like the Dharma gates of joyful ease are opening up because we're, we're in a state of continuous tension about falling short. And the same... And, and, and sorry, and I was going to say, you know, in, in Zen practice, we do cut ourselves slack. But I think sometimes even in Zen practice, this can come up and this can come up a lot. Sure, it's probably come up for everybody at some point when we're trying to follow the forms. Our groups definitely had it with our Oriaki bowls <laughs> these last couple of days. You know, we're all working very hard to try and get everything right. And then we'll, we'll miss a step or we'll do something wrong. And ah, oh, yeah, it ruins the whole meal. Um, and, and so I think it's important that, you know, we remember this. We remember this in this balance in our practice of the forms, that we, we open ourselves rather than constricting ourselves. And it makes me think of, of you know, I have a daughter who's, who's four years old now. But um, in a few years, you know, she'll... I, I see children, you know, 10 years older than her, kids who are in, like, middle school, high school... Who, who get very worried, get very stressed. They're under a lot of pressure to perform, to get good grades, to, to get into the colleges that are going to, you know, ultimately, so they're told, give them the qualifications that will provide their freedom for the rest of their lives. You know, this is, this is the story. And it's, um, it's a heck of a weight to shoulder at a young age, at any age. But for, for young people, stress rates are high. Um, the incidence of... Mental illness is high. Suicide rates are unacceptably high. And so we see it happening, and it might even be happening to, to our, old, our own children, but at, at what point are we willing to, to opt out, to try something else, to take another route? What are the alternatives for a culture that's held captive by ideas of achievement and excellence? So the collection of koans, the Mumonkan, uh, case 19, it's a dialogue between Master Nansen and his student Joshu. It's a famous dialogue. And it starts, uh, student asks his teacher, what is the way? And Nansen replies, ordinary mind is the way. And Joshu says, like every good student, shall I try to seek after it? And the teacher tells him, if you try for it, you will become separated from it. And the student's puzzled. How can I know the way unless I try for it? And Nansen says, the way is not a matter of knowing or not knowing. Knowing is delusion, not knowing is confusion. When you have really reached the true way beyond doubt, you will find it as vast and boundless as outer space. How can it be talked about on the level of right and wrong? With these words, Joshu came to a sudden realization. So the reason I went to art school as a young person was due to an experience I had while I was at high school. It was the experience of oil painting. 
And I'd never, before the age of 16, I'd never actually studied art. And I, I took this class and I had the privilege of having a wonderful art teacher called Mr. Bateman, who had fantastic humor and, and sincerity and, and really just wanted to teach us what he knew to transmit his, his arts to us. And one of the main things I think he taught me was how to look, which is important, you know, when you're drawing, when you're making art. Because the natural tendency, as Mr. Bateman showed us at the tender age of 16, 17, is to want to paint or draw what you think is there. You know, so you all think you know what something looks like, what a person looks like. You kind of think you vaguely know anatomy. Um, but this process that, that he put us through helped me to understand that what was actually there was very different from what was in my mind. My first drafts were awkward and blocky and lacking vitality because I was doing just that. I was just painting what I thought should be there, what kind of made sense. And we'd be, we'd, we'd be doing life class. So we'd have life, life models come in to the class like every week. And, you know, it was, it was a wonderful way to study the body in a way that, you know, we'd, we never really had. We'd never looked at people. We'd never looked at the human form like this before. So we'd be there drawing and suddenly Mr. Bateman would like appear over your shoulder. You'd feel him hovering there. And he would, um, he would say, look again, look again. Look at the way that the shadow falls across the back there. The way the arm creases at the elbow. Look, look here at the neck. What's, what's really the color of the light there? And I'd say, green? <laughs> and he'd say, yes, green, green. Put the green down. Said, green, I can't put green. That's not the color of our skin. Green. And I'd put the green down and, and, it, and it worked, you know. It was right. Like, that, that, was, that was honest. Like, that was what I, that was what I saw. So I, you know, slowly... Through this experience, I, I learned to trust. Um, I used to learn to trust my immediate experience and, and what was in front of me, what I was looking at, even if it had nothing to do with what my logic in my head was telling me, my inner schema. And so this, this sort of intuition that he was teaching us uh, evolved over the, the two years that I practiced painting in high school. And I had that wonderful experience of, of creativity as a kind of magic when you could spend hours in, in this state of sort of intuitive concentration when you, you're adding something, taking something away, erasing something, putting it to the side. And it's kind of a, a process that's guided by a feeling of... Um, I'm sorry. It, it, was a, it was a process that... Um, it was being guided by a process that produced the kind of things that were very different from the things that I produced in other classes. It was a very, very different way of working and a way of being. And, um, and I thought, huh, I, I fell in love with this. You know, I was like, okay, this is, this is, how, I, this is how I want to be in the world. Um, and though it was from that point onwards, a, a few more years, maybe five more years until I discovered Zen practice, um, in retrospect now I can see why it had so much appeal to me in that moment. There's a quote by John Daido Luri, who's a, an, he was a, an artist himself, a Zen teacher, a photographer. And I, I read that he wrote somewhere that the creative process, like a spiritual journey, is intuitive, nonlinear, and experiential. It points us towards our essential nature, which is a reflection of the boundless creativity of the universe. So Zen, Zen sails pretty close to the arts. Zen goes very well with art. And there's lots of different forms, like the official Zen arts, of which I have very little knowledge, like calligraphy, painting, ceramics, pottery. And I personally have done a few short courses with haiku, sumie, and enzo, as I mentioned before. And what struck me on, on all of doing all of these courses is how little training or instruction you need to actually just dive in like you kind of just need to be set up and, and sort of shown the initial steps and you can just go for it you know it, it, it might not be a master work but you you can very quickly enter into this form and use it and express yourself through it 
so when, when we had our Enzo class at, at Canando at the end of the hour, all the students came and hung up their drawings like on the wall and we all looked at each other's Enzos. And, and they were, there were dozens of them and they were beautiful <laughs> and intriguing. And, uh, and they were all different shapes and sizes and different thicknesses and different moods. Some were very circular, some were very wonky and misshapen. Some of them that we'd, we'd done them not with brushes and, but with sticks and so they just were sort of like V's, like they didn't even resemble a circle at all. But it was fascinating, every single one had so much to say. They were all fascinating in their own way. And um, so I'm not, I'm not sure it's fair to say necessarily that, um, that Western art is a, a fetish of mastery. Well, the East is necessarily always more accessible to everyone because obviously Zen also has its masters, as do its arts. There are master calligraphers in uh, history, master poets, elevated artists. There's master Enzo makers. But then there's people who just get up in the morning and draw an Enzo. It's just a practice. Like, we could all do that. We could all get up in the morning and, and draw an Enzo. And, uh, and I have a friend who has an Enzo diary. She just puts an Enzo every day. <laughs> um, and that brings me back to Giotto. Again, Giotto and his, per his perfections. Because the last thing I want to do is to make assumptions about him as well. And what surprised me the other day when I was, when I was researching this was that online I, I found the, the kind of, the, the, the story, this sort of urban myth about Giotto's circle. And I was surprised to read it. I got a kick out of reading it because um, it kind of reads like a koan. So I'm going to read it to you. So the Pope, Pope, I think I'm going to pronounce his name right, Boniface VIII, wanted to commission some paintings for St. Peter's. So he sent a courtier around to find the best painter in Italy. The courtier asked all the artists to give him a sample of their work to send to the Pope. The courtier came to Giotto's workshop, explained his mission, and asked him for a drawing which would give the Pope some idea of his competence and style. Sure, said Giotto. He laid down a sheet of paper, reached for a brush dipped in red paint, closed his arm to his side to make a sort of compass of it, and then in one even sweep, scribed a perfect circle. There you are he told the courtier, handing it to him with a smile. He's very pleased with himself. <laughs> That's your drawing? asked the courtier, who didn't know whether Giotto was pulling his leg or not. Is that all you're going to send, his holiness? <laughs> That's more than enough, said Giotto. Send it with your other drawings and see whether it's understood or not. The Pope's messenger took the drawing and went away, trying to hold his temper. Did that little painter think that he was a fool? When he got back to Rome, he showed the Pope the big O and told him how Giotto had scribed it, freehand, without a compass. The Pope and his advisers did understand the achievement of that O and gave Giotto the commission. That's quite nice. So that, that image, you know, obviously of Giotto doing his circle in one big sweep, did, it made me think of the Enzos, you know, it made me think of Giotto and his, his practice. It's, it's a practice too. I, might, I like to think that he woke up every morning and had a, had a circle diary. And one day, just one of his circles happened to be perfect. <clears throat> so just bringing it full circle. <laughs> Enzo, to me, Enzo, um, what thinking about Enzo's has opened up for me recently is this idea that um, every gesture, every action is, is an expression. And it's something that we can expand into all of our lives, you know, beyond the artistic practice or 
the, the, the forms, the formal forms of our Zen practice. That uh, perfection is a direction and not a destination. That it's, it sets up the ground that we live on and the ground that we move on. And that each gesture that we make, it's not, it's not a studied construction. It's not something that you know, we have to work so hard to build and achieve. Um, rather, it's an expression of just of what is. There's any questions? Yes, Lessa. Oh, sorry, we're going to have. Um, can you use the microphone? Is it okay? Thank you. Hi, my name is Lessa, and do you still have your um, circles? Your my my 1,000 attempts yeah, 1, at a perfect attempt circle. At a perfect circle. I think it's festering in a basement somewhere. <laughs> I do. I have a whole like containers of all sort of former artworks gathering how, dust somewhere. How big is it? I think it was probably about this big. Hard to scan. Large draw. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I think I'd probably try to photograph it at some point. <laughs> yes. Oh. Hello. How long did it take to make that circle chart or whatever it's called? To make the, the circles drawing? Yes. Gosh, um, a few hours, definitely. Like the, the large part of an afternoon, maybe going into the evening. I would say maybe four or five hours. Yeah, and I think... That's I'd... fast. Because <laughs> normally that would take like, I don't know, a week or a month. Right? Yeah, true. And get your fast. I don't Maybe if I'd slowed down a bit, I might have made a better circle. <laughs> Thank you. There's a question over there. Thank you for this. Uh, could you just open up a little bit what you said towards the end? Direction is perfection is a direction, not a destination. Could you open that up a little bit for us? Mm-hmm, sure. Um, so like, like I mentioned on, on this retreat, for like one example, on, on this retreat we've been, um, we've been practicing with Oriaki bowls. And I think it's a, it's a good example because it's a very concrete practice of something that you can perfect. You know, you do it over and over again and there's just a certain way of doing something that, you know. Um, but for the most part, I think what becomes sort of painfully obvious as we're, as we're trying to practice it, or, or, or any form in particular, is, is, you know, the amount of times that you drop the ball. You know, the amount of times that that, that space opens up between you and this destination that you had in mind. And I think um, at least what happens for me in that situation is um, that there arises a constriction and a kind of and an anxiety, which to me is not helpful. Um, and I think in order to really open and engage with this process of what's going on, I have to let go of the idea that I'm going to do it perfectly because it's still a concept that's kind of a little bit in the future, the idea of having done it perfectly. And really, the best and most, I suppose, perfect thing that can happen at that moment is, is my presence. Um, and the presence is here. The presence is something that I can do from moment to moment, or I can try to do. And so, it, it, I mean, it occurred to me, you know, even on that small level, or on, you know, a, a, a larger and more abstract level, you know, the kind of person I want to be, the things that I'd like to do, you know, the perfect friend I'd like to be, the perfect wife I'd like to be, you know, I, I fall short on that absolutely every day. 
but it's my, that's my arena of practice. I know I'll never get there. I'll know I'll never be satisfied. But seeing it in a different way, seeing it as like this is my ground of practice, um, I think is a, it's an approach that it, it's, an, it's a much more open and less constrictive approach. Would that be similar to something like if we seek perfection, we will never find it because it is perfection that is doing the looking. I like that quote. <laughs> perfection doing the looking. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. My name is Charlie. Um, I Hello. wanted to thank you. For, I, I really uh, resonated with what you said about um, attempt uh, versus the outcome. Mm-hmm. And that a bit in expanding on that a little bit, um, and it strikes me that when um, when we have things in life that we don't worry so much about the outcome, we tend to treat them as frivolous, some, some, mm. somewhat. Um, and what you just said about expanding that into your, the rest of your um, aspects of your life kind of answered what I was thinking about how do we do that and when is it appropriate? Is it always appropriate? Um, so I guess what I was going to ask is, um, are there are there areas that you find that tension or that um, re- reluctance to take this approach um, in your life interest in general that you think would be makes it would be beneficial but is more difficult to do that? I mean, I can't even say that I always take, that I'm even perfect at taking that approach because like, obviously sometimes I don't, sometimes I really beat myself up. Um, I mean, I, I was, it, it, it gives you pause because I think on, on the other hand, I think like, like you say, there's certain things you want to do well, you know, there's certain things that you, you do care about an outcome, you know, there sort of needs to be an outcome. I mean, I, in my own life, you know, I can relate it to my daughter, for example, you know, um, and um, but I think it's still, I think it's still somehow. I think in, I mean I think in those moments, I, there's a kind of a balance of outcome and process, you know. Um, your tenzo in the kitchen and the meal has to be ready like in 10 minutes you know I think there's certain at at that moment like you have to make some very fast instinctive decisions about what you're going to do and that's part of it you know then that then that itself becomes the process so um yeah what I'm hearing is that it the skillful approach is knowing knowing how much to how much emphasis to put on it either right Right. It's, yeah. Skillfulness. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. How do, I mean, how do you find it for yourself? Uh, I would say that when I started to practice exploring Zen, um, I think my inclination is to try to take that to the extreme, right? Which is not skillful either, because then, yeah. then, then not, no outcome matters all that much. Um, so you got to find, that's why I'm asking the question mm-hmm. about finding that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, I'm going through a journey with a lot of uncertainties, and I needed to hear this <laughs> because I think what makes perfection easy in art and hard in life is all these uncertainties, right? There are so many things that on a piece of paper, you know uh, the color of the brush and everything, but in life, it's all uncertain. And this um, perfection doesn't have any meaning or it's just the act of doing and going toward that idea. But the idea of, we, I think we have the idea of perfection, like be wise. Everybody knows how to be wise. But um, wisdom in life, I guess that is where it's hard to understand. 
perfection in real life. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, I guess I'm I'm curious about uh, what you said about thinking about raising your daughter and when she's 14 and um, all of the stress. I actually, I'm a teacher and I teach 14-year-old girls. Mm. And I was just curious, what would you want um, from like a Zen perspective uh, looking at this pattern? What would you want your daughter at 14, her teacher to know in order to kind of discourage that kind of crippling perfectionism that we're seeing? Thank you for your question. That's a, that's a really good question. Um, it's it's hard for me to project forward into the future. I think I can I could only best answer that by thinking back into my own experiences at that age. And I think the the things that I I'm the most grateful for the experiences that I had with teachers that I'm the most grateful for were um, whether I think and I'm thinking of one teacher in particular who was my English teacher when I was 15 was somebody who was able to really rouse true excitement and curiosity in me like about the world and that it was strong enough to to then carry me past these yeah, I had I also had my own moments of pressure and family pressure like going forward but between that experience and the experience that um, I talked about a little later at, with the high school art teacher having people who were just so single-mindedly passionate about their particular subject that you know, we, we never really talked about how it would serve us in our lives or <laughs> you know, what are we going to do then? And maybe a little bit of that might have been useful too, but, um, but it, was, it was contagious you know, to see somebody living passionately. Um, yeah, he was a real Robin Williams type, my teacher, <laughs> sort of short of standing on the desks, but you know, he, he really was this kind of person who would just teach us to shift our perspective, shift our perspective, to think for ourselves, and to, and to so I, I suppose something like this, you know, to be able to give people the confidence to trust how they, trust their perceptions, trust their experiences, and to nurture that and to, to, to realize the wonder of that. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for your talk, Vanessa. Thank you. Um, I was at that workshop with you, and I found it really interesting. Um, it could be a confirmation bias, but for me, my favorite Enzo was my first one before I knew how it was going to go. Um, and after that, all the Enzos... I did, I could see real constraint in them and some idea of me trying to solve it. Um, and even if I went back to my breath and I thought I was clear, um, I think I was trying to fix the one before. Um, Marcia said she would do Enzo's first thing in the morning and that made a lot of sense to me. Um, and I wondered, in my regular day-to-day, -day, if sometimes I think I'm approaching things with beginner's minds and I'm clear and I'm not really, if I'm carrying things. Um, so I wondered what you thought about that, um, kind of balancing your judgment of things but trying to keep that open mind and if you had a similar experience. Yeah, I definitely, I, I relate to what you say about you know, going into the detail of how, how that process went with the Enzos, you know, it's a good, it's always great. I think anytime you, you're doing something for the first time, you know, it's so great to just stop and remember that and really pay attention in that moment to what your mind's doing because it's, that's it. You'll never repeat that moment again, you know, your first Enzo, it's, um, and your first everything. Um, I always, I always think back to the first time I ever drove a car 
like the first time I ever sat behind the wheel and felt that, like pressed the accelerator and felt the car going forward. And I was like, oh my goodness. And, you know, how switched on you are at that moment, you know, just, and I, I try and, I just try and remember that sometimes, you know, in Zazen, uh, that, that kind of attitude, that kind of readiness, that awareness that I had. I sort of, for me, somehow that memory of being in the car for the first time is like, that's my model. <laughs> when I need to wake up a little, like that, that's, that's such a great feeling. Um, so yeah, I think, I think maybe something, something like, you know, just paying attention to every first. I guess every day there's a first of some sort, right? No matter how small, like every day, you probably do something tiny for the first time. So holding that moment and maybe that little lesson can then expand into the whole day and then days go forward. thoughts thank you for a phrase that just stuck in my mind which is trying to fix the one before um, I really feel that as I move through my days sometimes as I say things to people and then the echoes in my mind of oh geez how could I have said that better and how will I do it better next time and dragging that baggage along often has me stumbling in the next moment it's, so thanks for that. Um, a phrase you used earlier has stuck with me also. Um, uh, the phrase was fidelity towards the ideal. Mm. And um, I think that's really, um, that really sparked something in me. And uh, an echo of that, that that came to me was that um, in terms of my own practice was to again and again keep finding the appropriate fidelity towards the ideal again and again there's there's no one way you can't just fix the dial in one particular place or, or I can't circumstances keep changing and immediacies and and moods and things are so important but, but how to do that, how to find the appropriate fidelity towards the ideal. Um, I think uh, another person that uh, spoke a moment ago, um, an echo of that that comes to me is um, the idea of curiosity is super important to finding that appropriateness, the level of appropriate. But curiosity... Um, I think it's important to look at curiosity and not um, see it in the way we've been, that I've been so conditioned through so much of my um, early life and schooling that curiosity meant reaching out to find something that I could bring back and have to show. Um, that I was asking a verbal question that I could come up with some verbal answer to. That's a conditioned curiosity that serves us well in schooling and in institutional interactions and things of that nature. But I think, personally for me, in finding the way, the kind of curiosity that's important is a preconditioned curiosity, the kind of curiosity one observes in an infant that is, doesn't know what they're supposed to be doing, doesn't know what they're not supposed to be doing, is just reaching out and looking and listening um, and that's all, that's, with, that's within me still. I, I have to have faith that it's still within me and still within each one of you in this room. And um, that seems to be something that's, um, that beginner's mind always gets a little taste of that. Like the first time you're going to do something, you don't have a last time that you're trying to fix. It's something brand new. How do you um, find ways to get to that unconditioned curiosity, the kind of um, 
the kind of curiosity that sparks um, passion and enthusiasm, uh, the kind of curiosity I think that your art teacher was helping to spark in you, you know. Probably those good teachers weren't necessarily giving you a sharper way to reach out and come up with some answer that was going to please him or her or please yourself. But how, did you, how do you move back towards that um, pure kind of curiosity? I have to make space for it. Mm-hmm. I have to make space for it. Mm-hmm. It's. Uh, I feel that that that's kind of the first step. And and this is this is talking just very personally as, um, of, of a process of creation as well. I guess like I'm I'm a writer now. Mm-hmm. That's what I do. And so, um, I I. I I relate to what you say, you know, this, this other state of curiosity, which is this kind of grasping, you know, I, I'm missing something and therefore I need to take something and then I'll have it and then mm-hmm. I'm good, mm-hmm. you know. And what you're saying about resetting yourself every day mm-hmm. as well, because ev- every circumstance is different, every moment is different. <laughs> and sometimes what I find is that I'll, I'll have put myself in a, in, a, in a very receptive situation where this, this kind of curiosity can flourish and it works. Mm-hmm. And then the next day I'm like, I'm going to go do that again. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I think you're, you're always, it's, that's, the, that's practice, right? You're always just feeling it out. Like, mm-hmm. where, where is this going to take me today? Where do I go today? Like, what's fertile mm-hmm. today? Mm-hmm. And you've, I think you feel it. I think the moment something starts to, to bubble, mm-hmm. like, you, you just kind of move in that direction. I don't know. Yeah. Thank you. That's yeah. that's very helpful. What what is fertile right now? It's yeah. where where is the the rich soil? Thank you. Thank you. Um, I have heard the the bell calling us to lunch, um, but maybe we do have. If there's anyone that has another question, we could do another. At the risk of repeating myself. If it's bound to the search, found in the search, it's implied in the search. I mean, there would be no search if there was no idea of perfection. What could be more beautiful to give students or children that hunger to search? Mm. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by Jokoji Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information about Jokoji, please visit us on the web at jokoji.org.